Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7. But when he, that is John, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I am a Baptist, and I'm not ashamed. Now, I'm a Christian first, but I am a Baptist by heritage and by conviction. I say by heritage because I come from a long line of Baptist preachers and Baptist missionaries, but I say by conviction because my Baptist faith is not just something I inherited, it's something I intentionally chose. I am and remain a Baptist because I am convinced that our faith as Baptist is grounded in the teachings of the inspired and inerrant Word of God. Now, if you pay much attention to social media, and I hope you won't, you have probably gotten the impression that baptized are generally viewed as theologically shallow, as doctrinal simpletons. But the fact is, our Baptist beliefs have a very rich history. Most of our Baptist churches affirm a statement of beliefs called the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. But that statement of faith is in fact a revision of the 1963 Baptist Faith and Message, which is in turn a revision of the 1925 Baptist Faith and Message, which in turn is a revision of the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of 1833, which in a sense is just an abridgment of the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689. And we could keep on going because I'm convinced that these Baptist convictions ultimately can be traced back to the authority of the New Testament itself. In fact, I find the major tenets of our Baptist convictions being taught and affirmed by the very first person in history to be called a Baptist, the one we know as John the Baptist. Now, please understand, I'm not implying that John the Baptist was the founder of a denomination. I'm simply saying that the major tenets of our modern-day Baptist beliefs are the same as those of the preaching and convictions of John the Baptist himself. Now, we probably miss that because those who portray us as Theological simpletons have acted as if the Baptist motto is don't drink, dance, chew, or go with girls who do. <laughs> but the fact is, there's much, much more to our theology than that. And that rich theology is shared by John the Baptist himself. We can summarize 
these four basic convictions in this way. First, repentance is more than a feeling. Second, Jesus is more than a prophet. Third, salvation is more than forgiveness. And fourth, the gospel is more than good news. First of all, repentance is more than a feeling. Uh, we saw last week that the essence of John the Baptist's message is the statement, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we saw that to repent, metanoeo, means to have second thoughts about your sinful past. That is to regret it. To be so deeply grieved by your sin that you desire change and seek to abandon your sinful lifestyles. And John makes that abundantly clear in verse 8 when he tells those who wish to receive his baptism that they must not only repent, but they must, verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, this is the first use of the word fruit in the Gospel of Matthew to describe the character, behavior, and speech that reveals our inner spiritual condition. And what John is saying here is if you want to receive the baptism that I administer, you can't just claim to have repented. You must demonstrate your repentance through your character and behavior, by the way you walk and by the way you talk. You have to give evidence of your repentance through a changed life. Now, obviously, this is very different from some aspects of modern Christianity. It's becoming increasingly popular these days to offer what are known as mass baptisms, where anybody who wants to be baptized can come forward and be baptized in the Pacific or, or wherever without a careful examination of that person's beliefs and without a careful inspection of their life to see if there are, what John demanded here, fruits of repentance. But this is thoroughly unbiblical. Because the repentance that is required for baptism will always be something that's not just expressed by our lips, it will be expressed by our lives. And that becomes very clear when we look at the parallel to this account in the Gospel of Luke. Luke expands here on his explanation of John's teaching in Luke 3, 10 through 14. The crowds ask him to explain what he means by fruits of repentance. And John says, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. Then some of the tax collectors came to be baptized. And they said to John, Teacher, what shall we do? And John said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to do. And some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And John said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. John's preaching makes it clear that genuine repentance is not just regret over the sins of our past. It involves a change in lifestyle. And that's one of the reasons I argued last week that repentance is not just a human duty, it is a divine gift. God enables us to repent, and it's His transforming work that brings repentance to fruition. When I was serving in my last full-time pastorate before entering a ministry of theological education where I focused on training pastors and missionaries. During the gospel invitation at the end of one of our services, a couple came forward. They 
confessed faith in Jesus as God, Savior, and King, and the requested church membership, the lady by baptism, and the man by transfer of letter. And they were taken back, and they were given extensive counseling by some of our church leaders that I had personally trained to explain the gospel thoroughly, and those counselors were absolutely convinced that they were genuine believers. They answered every question right. When I was reviewing their information, I noticed that they had two different last names but the same physical address. So I felt that I needed to follow up personally and see what was going on. I got into their home and the conversation was pleasant. I had an extensive discussion about the truths of the gospel and they said all the right things. And then as diplomatically as I know how, and I am more diplomatic than John is, by the way, I didn't call anybody a brood of vipers or anything like that. As gently as I knew how, I began to probe into that awkward situation. I said, I couldn't help but notice that although you're living together, you have two different last names. Have you been married? Oh, no, the man insisted. But initially, he argued their relationship was purely platonic. Well, I wasn't born yesterday. And uh, I wasn't convinced by that, and he sensed my hesitation, and as the conversation went on, he finally got angry enough with me that he blurted out everything that went on in that household, far more than I would ever have wanted to know. But he said, that shouldn't be any business of yours, because I prayed the prayer, he said. I believed what had to be believed. And he said, you're nothing more than a hypocrite because at your church, preacher, just this last Sunday, we sang amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Seems to me you don't really belong, believe in that amazing grace. And I said, no, I do believe in God's amazing grace, but I believe it's more amazing than you do. Because I believe that God's amazing grace not only forgives us, God's amazing grace transforms us. It makes us into new and different people. And the life that you're living right now is inconsistent with the repentance of sin and submission to Jesus' royal and divine authority that is essential to the Christian faith. I said, here's what we've got. If I were to accept you as members of Hickory Ridge Baptist Church, I would be obligated as the shepherd of that flock to immediately turn around and begin the process of church discipline. Because this lifestyle is inconsistent with genuine Christianity. Yes, the Lord Jesus forgives us just as we are, but he does not leave us that way. And repentance is a deception if it is nothing more than a verbal confession. Repentance in truth will always be accompanied by spiritual fruit. And we can say we have repented. We can say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry for all my sins with every intention of persisting and continuing in those sinful lifestyles, and that is not biblical repentance. John the Baptist is clear. If we truly repent, that repentance will be expressed in fruit, a new way of behaving a new way of speaking, a new character, a new lifestyle. But not only does John preach that repentance is more than a feeling, he also teaches that Jesus is more than a prophet. John the Baptist has a very high view of the Lord Jesus, and John recognizes that though John personally is a prophet, 
we might even say the last of the Old Testament prophets, Jesus surpasses him enormously in both power and in position. First John expresses that Jesus surpasses him in power. Now, that's remarkable. Because remember, we saw last week that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah, a mightiest miracle-working prophet of the Old Testament. John is the New Testament Elijah, so to speak. And yet, notice what he says about Jesus. He says, the one who is coming after me is mightier than I am. He's more powerful than I am. In other words, Jesus is mightier than the mightiest of the prophets because he is not merely a prophet of God. He is the God of the prophets. John continues with an example of why Jesus is mightier than he is. He goes on to explain that Jesus has a higher position than he does as well. He says, the one coming after me is one, verse 11, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Now, in first century Judaism, an Israelite slave could be required to perform any menial work task for their Israelite master, except one. There was one task that was so condescending, so humiliating, that even an Israelite slave could not be required to perform it. And that was to untie the strings of the master's sandals, remove those sandals, and then carry them for him. So when John the Baptist says, I'm not worthy to do this specific thing for the Lord Jesus, he says, Jesus is so much higher and greater than I am. I'm not even worthy to be his slave. No, I'm not even worthy to be less than his slave. Now, remember, the Lord Jesus said of those born of women, no one has arisen who is greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the greatest of all mere human beings. And yet John the Baptist says, Jesus is so much greater than I am. I'm not worthy to be his slave or, or even less than his slave. Now, you probably heard before the story about how the Vatican chauffeur died unexpectedly. And the Pope needed a new chauffeur. He, he hired a man pretty abruptly without looking into his background thoroughly enough. And as it turned out, that young chauffeur didn't know the streets of Rome nearly as well as the recently deceased one had. First day on the job, the Pope was headed to an urgent meeting and the chauffeur took several long tur turns that threatened to make the Pope late. And the Pope said, uh, why don't I drive and you get here in the back seat? And the man was horrified at the thought. How terribly embarrassing. No, no, we can't do that. But after another wrong turn, the Pope finally insisted and so the chauffeur stopped the car, he got out, went to the back seat, and the Pope went to the driver's seat. Now, because he was running behind, his foot was a little too heavy. He broke the speed limit by a considerable amount, and the next thing he knew, he looked and he saw blue flashing lights in the rearview mirror. He pulls over, and the officer comes to the window, has him roll it down, about to write the speeding ticket, and he takes one look at the driver, then another look at the passenger in the back seat, and then another look at the driver, and he profusely apologizes and just waves the man on. 
He goes back and his fellow officer in the patrol car says, why didn't you write the ticket? He clearly deserved a ticket. And he said, I would not dare give him a ticket. And he said, well, who was the owner of the vehicle? And he said, well, let's just say he has the Pope for a chauffeur. (laughs) You figure it out. Now, in that familiar joke, who is it assumed that the passenger must be? It must be God, right? Because in the viewpoint of an Italian Catholic police officer, no one could be so great as to have the Pope for a chauffeur other than God himself. And it's a similar comparison that reveals to us in this passage how great Jesus Christ truly is. He is so great that the mightiest of the prophets, the one greatest of all those merely born of women, is so low in comparison to him that that prophet is not worthy to carry his sandals to perform for him a task that is beneath the dignity of even an Israelite slave. And the point of this statement is that Jesus is so vastly superior to John the Baptist because he is more than just a prophet of God. He is the God of the prophets. This was revealed to us in Matthew chapter 1. In the quotation of Isaiah 7:14, Jesus is called Emmanuel, which means God with us, because he is deity incarnate, God in human flesh. The conviction of John the Baptist is that repentance is more than a feeling. It involves a transformed life. And Jesus is more than a prophet. He is the second person of the Trinity, almighty God in human form. But then John continues, salvation is more than forgiveness. One of the reasons that John exclaims that Jesus is so vastly superior to him is because Jesus will perform a baptism that is so much greater than the one that John performs. John says, I baptize you with water in demonstration of your repentance. But the one who is coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is mentioned fairly frequently in the Old Testament scriptures. And every time that the outpouring of the Spirit is mentioned, the same agent performs that baptism. The one performing the baptism of the Spirit is always Jehovah, Yahweh, Almighty God. For example, Isaiah 44, 3, Jehovah says, I will pour out my Spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Ezekiel 36, the new covenant promise. Yahweh says, I will put my spirit within you. Ezekiel 37, 14. I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land and you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it. If we had time to look at Ezekiel 39, 29, Joel 2, 29, Zechariah 12, 10, and so forth, we would see that consistently through the Old Testament, Jehovah is the one who pours out the Spirit. So when John the Baptist says that Jesus Christ will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, he is saying Jesus will do what only God can do. He will perform the deeds of Yahweh foretold by the Old Testament prophets. And this is yet another confirmation of Jesus' deity in the preaching of John the Baptist. But 
John's statement here not only reveals to us an important truth about Jesus' identity, it also reveals to us an important truth about the very nature of our salvation. And the point is, salvation is more than just the forgiveness of sin. It involves radical transformation of our life because this reference to the baptism of the Spirit is primarily an allusion back to the new covenant promise in Ezekiel 36. And this is what the promise said. God said, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Take away the hard heart that is stubborn and rebellious and give us a heart that is sensitive, compliant, submissive to God's authority and eager to fulfill his commands. And God continued, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will be my people and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness. Now, John's preaching about the baptism of the Holy Spirit is dependent on the new covenant promise of the outpouring of the Spirit, God placing His Spirit within us to move us to fulfill God's commandments and do what is right, holy, and good. So what John is saying is right now, you just receive a water baptism as a symbol of your repentance toward God. But when the Messiah comes, he will pour out the Holy Spirit and the Spirit will transform you from the inside out. He will change your priorities. He will change your desires. He will change your character and he will change your speech and your behavior. And we're going to see next week when we look at the baptism of the Lord Jesus that water baptism became a symbol of spiritual baptism. Acts 10.47 is an example of this. And spiritual baptism is an act of new creation in which God radically transforms our life. New creation is that miracle we talked about back in Matthew 1.1. Remember the first phrase of the Gospel of Matthew literally means the book of Genesis. Some of you remembered. And it's a Genesis, an act of creation performed by Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. This baptism of the Spirit is synonymous with that act of new creation. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any person is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. And if we are not new and different people than we were, before we professed faith, however we professed it, something is terribly, terribly wrong. True repentance of sin and true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as God's Savior and King is life transforming. True salvation involves not only God rescuing us from the penalty of sin, but God also rescuing us from the power of sin so that we are not under its dominion. We are not enslaved to it any longer. And we come to that final major tenet of the theology of the Baptist. Repentance is more than a feeling. Jesus is more than a prophet. Salvation is more than forgiveness. And the gospel is more than good news. And what I mean by that is it involves bad news 
too. Now, we don't like to talk about the bad news because none of us like to be negative Nellies. I, apologies if your name happens to be Nellie. Uh, none of us you know, like to, you know, have a sour attitude and be talking about unpleasant things. And some people want to overcompensate for some of the negative aspects of the Christian gospel by revising the gospel and proclaiming a message that is entirely positive. So our evangelism is simply God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. No mention of sin, no mention of wrath, no mention of hell. Because those things are too negative. They're too old-fashioned. Well, it's time for a reality check. I'm afraid sometimes we confuse, as modern-day Christians, being nice and being loving. And being nice means we always want to be upbeat and pleasant and tell people what they want to hear. Being loving means sometimes telling people the hard truths that they most need to hear. And our world today needs to hear not only the good news aspects of the gospel, but the bad news aspects as well. And to hide the eternal realities that await the lost from them is not loving. It is hateful. John the Baptist had the love and integrity to warn his hearers of the real dangers that await the unrepentant. And his message was no more appealing and attractive back then than it is today, but in faithfulness to God, he boldly proclaimed it nevertheless. He warned the people of his day of what he calls the wrath that is to come. Now, the word wrath has fallen out of our modern-day Christian vocabulary, so it probably deserves a definition. God's wrath is his intense fury, his holy rage against human sinfulness and rebellion. And it is that wrath that moves the just and holy God to punish the unrepentant wicked. And there are many vivid images of the wrath of God in the scriptures. Uh, one image that we see is from Isaiah 63, verse 3. I'll mention it because it's repeated in the New Testament in Revelation 14, 19. It's the winepress of the wrath of God. Now, a winepress was a large stone bowl that a vineyard keeper would fill with clusters of grapes, and then he would take off his sandals, he would gird his loins, which meant uh, reaching between his ankles and grabbing the back of his robe and pulling it up between his leg and stuck, stuffing it into his belt to transform those long robes into a pair of gym shorts, essentially. And then the farmer would crawl up into the wine press and he would begin to trample with his feet the clusters of grapes. And his goal was to trample them so thoroughly that every drop of the juice of the grape, that crimson juice was known to the ancients as the blood of the grape, would be forced out of the grape so that he could take the juice and then make it into wine. And when he had completed his work and he crawled out of the wine press, his feet, his ankles, his shins, his upper legs, and the bottom of his robes would be splattered with the crimson blood of those many clusters in the wine press. And Isaiah the prophet used that vivid image as a picture of what the judge of all the earth will do 
when he holds the unrepentant wicked of this world to account. He will trample the wicked in the winepress of his wrath until they are thoroughly destroyed and his feet and legs and robes are splattered with the blood of their destruction. In Jeremiah and Ezekiel, some other images are used. The wrath of God is described as a hurricane force wind that levels everything in its path. It's described as an earthquake that shatters the bedrock. But one of the most frequent images used to describe the wrath of God in the Bible is fire. We see an example of this in Jeremiah 7:20. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. You'll notice that at the end of verse 12, John the Baptist refers to the wrath of God using the expression unquenchable fire. That phrase is drawn from Jeremiah 7:20, where the wrath of God is said to burn and not be quenched. And John the Baptist here, as he preaches to the crowds, tells them that they have a choice between one of two baptisms. Because when the Messiah comes, he will perform a baptism of the Spirit, but he will also perform a baptism of fire. Now, some people think that the baptism of the Spirit is just the baptism of the fire because the Spirit sometimes manifests His presence in the form of fire, like the fiery tongues uh, over the disciples on the day of Pentecost. But no, the context makes it clear here that these are two distinct baptisms. John is preaching to a mixed audience, and he knows that there are some who will repent and there are some who will not repent, and he's warning them that those who do repent will receive the baptism of the Spirit. They will be forgiven and they will be changed. But those who refuse to repent will receive the baptism of fire. The wrath of God will be outpoured against them. And the reason I say that's clear from the context is because of too many parables that John the Baptist tells. In verse 10, he tells what we could call the parable of the messianic axeman. He says, the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He's like an orchard keeper who goes through the orchard and every diseased tree that he finds that bears bad fruit, he takes his ax and with one powerful whack, severs the taproot, destroys that tree, and so it will not contaminate the rest of the orchard. He drags it outside the boundaries of the orchard and sets it ablaze. And John uses that imagery as a picture of how the heavenly judge will separate the repentant believer from the unrepentant wicked, and the unrepentant wicked will suffer the fire of divine wrath. And in case that weren't clear enough, he gives us another example in the parable of the messianic winnower, verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. In Bible times, when a farmer had harvested his stalks of wheat, he would take those wheat stalks and he would throw them on a round, flattened piece of earth called a threshing floor. And then he would take a team of oxen and drag a threshing sledge across those stalks. The, the sledge was a heavy wooden frame that had sharp stone or metal teeth protruding down, and it would rip the kernels of grain from the stalk. 
Then he would rake up the stalks, set them aside as fodder for his animals. And then he would take those kernels of wheat and put them in a winnowing shovel. And he would toss them up into the air, catch them with the shovel, toss them again. And the stiff breeze that blew across the threshing floor would blow away the little husk, the, the chaff of the wheat and bring it to the side of the threshing floor so that eventually all that was left on the threshing floor were the pure kernels of wheat that could then be ground and ultimately made into flour. And because a good ancient farmer wasted nothing out of that wheat harvest, just as he had saved the straw to feed his animals, he would save the chaff, which was highly flammable. And he would use that chaff as tinder to start the fires in the oven in his home. And John the Baptist uses this vivid imagery to describe final judgment. In this mini parable, who is the winnower? It is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Who is the wheat? Well, that's the repentant believer. What is the barn? Well, that's a reference to our eternity with the Father as believers. Now, what's the chaff that's separated from the wheat? Well, that's a reference to the unrepentant, wicked. And what's this unquenchable fire? Well, that's the reference to the wrath of God. It's interesting that he uses that expression from Jeremiah 7 to describe the fire. He's giving us a clue as to how to interpret the mini parable because unquenchable means inextinguishable. It just means it burns and burns and burns never endingly. And that's not the way chaff burned. Chaff was so highly flammable that once you got the spark to it, it would burst into flame and would be quickly consumed and the fire would immediately die. And so John says, this is where the details of the analogy break down. Please understand, the fires of the wrath of God are very different from that. It's not a fire that burns up and dies out. No, it is unquenchable. The Greek adjective that he uses here is actually the word asbestos. Sound familiar? Yeah, our word asbestos comes from it. A, a material that is not consumed by flame. And John uses that adjective to warn us that the fiery wrath of God is one that will never be extinguished. This is a punishment that will go on and on and on without end. Why is John so vivid? It's because he knows that people have to understand and appreciate the bad news before they can really embrace and be thankful for the good news. And the good news is that we can flee from the wrath to come. Now, sarcastically, John the Baptist accuses the Pharisees and Sadducees of doing that, but notice he does it at the same time he calls them a brood of vipers. Uh, he knows that they've not come to hear John's preaching because they want to repent They've come out of curiosity and only to gather evidence to use against John. But that expression, flee the wrath, is an important one. John wants us to know that it is possible to flee. How? Well, let me add that everybody will attempt to flee. But most will do it far too late, and they'll run in the wrong direction. And what I mean by that is they, they will want to flee when the wrath falls. 
Isaiah 2, 19 through 21 says that when the day of the Lord comes and God begins to outpour his wrath, people will go into caves and the rocks and holes in the ground away from the terror of the Lord and from his majestic splendor when he arises to terrify the earth. But that effort to flee from the wrath of God will be far, far too late because the time to flee is now. And that flight will be in the wrong direction because those unrepentant sinners are trying to run away from God to escape his wrath when John makes it clear that the means of escape is to run to God, to run to him in repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ and total dependence on his mercy and grace. But when I say the gospel is more than good news, I don't just mean that there's bad news too. I mean that good news doesn't quite describe it. It's great news. I still vividly remember the day when the gospel was clearly explained to me in a way that I could understand for the very first time. I couldn't imagine why have I never heard this before. And to this very day, it is the best news I have ever heard. Because the gospel tells us that although we are sinners who deserve this fiery wrath, and although there is nothing we can do ourselves to flee that wrath, Christ fled to us. He came into this world in the person of Jesus Christ, God, Savior, and King, he lived for us the sinless, perfect life that we can't live for ourselves. And then he went to the cross to be punished for our sins in our place so that we can escape this punishment, so that we can evade this fiery wrath. And he offers to erase our sin from the sight of the heavenly judge, to forgive us, to separate our sin as far from us as the east is from the west, to erase it from the very memory of the omniscient God. And he promises to transform us by performing the baptism of the Holy Spirit and changing us from the inside out so that we are not entrapped in our old sinful lifestyles. We have the power through Christ and his spirit to break free and live life a new and different way. And he promises that instead of us suffering eternal wrath, we will know eternal joy. Blessings that defy description. And it's great news because all of that is a gift that is free to us. I mean, it was costly, but Jesus paid the cost by his sacrificial death. To us, it is free. We receive that gift by simply repenting of our sins and by confessing faith in Jesus as God, Savior, and King. And all this great news will be promises that we can claim. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? What are you trusting for eternity? Are you like the Pharisees and Sadducees who gathered to John's baptism, who thought that the wrath of God was only for others and not for them? That no change was needed on their part? And I'll pray that you will respond like the many others who repented and who believed in the coming one. Jesus Christ. I invite you to pray with me right now and say, Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. I know that I deserve your punishment, 
but I believe you died on the cross for me, that you bore the punishment for my sins in my place so that I don't have to be punished. I trust you only to rescue me from wrath. Save me. Forgive me. Change me. Be my God, my Savior, and my King. And if that is your sincere commitment this morning, you've received the promise from Holy Scripture that you are now a child of God in heaven bound. Romans 10.9 says, If we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. Acts 16.31 says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's not my promise to you. That's God's promise to you. If you've made that commitment this morning, I'm going to ask that when we sing together, in just a second that you come forward and tell me about your commitment. I can answer any questions you might have and tell you what the next steps are in your Christian life. There will also be some deacons up here at the front that you can speak to after the service, but please don't leave this place without nailing this down and having assurance that you're a child of God whose sins are forgiven might be that you're a Christian a long, long time, but if truth were told, you've been a little embarrassed to be a Baptist. I pray that you will renew your conviction in the great truths of our Christian and Baptist faith, and that you will remember that repentance is more than a feeling. It involves change of life, that Jesus is more than a prophet. He is deity incarnate, God in human flesh. That salvation is more than forgiveness. God radically changes us too. And I pray that you will never forget that the gospel is more than good news. It's bad news too. And I pray that you will be haunted by that bad news this week so that you are compelled to share the good news with those who may not know it. Lord Jesus, we commit this invitation to you. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work to move men and women and boys and girls to faith in the Lord Jesus, Savior and Lord, and to strengthen our convictions in the truths that John the Baptist taught. In Jesus' name, amen.